Hi, and welcome to Green Planet, Blue Planet podcast, highlighting artists, teachers, authors, and philanthropists of the regenerative movement, people who are committed to and showcase qualities of planetary leadership. My name is Julian Guderlei. I'm a transformational coach, a breathwork teacher, and I'm committed to a world that allows people from all walks of life to thrive. I'm your host and creator of Green Planet, Blue Planet podcast, and today's guest is Seth Bunting. Seth is a creative director and artist working at the intersection of experiential design and immersive technology. He's a connector of people, ideas, and systems. He was the director of experience for Planet Home and Environmental Solutions Summit, bringing together 10,000 attendees alongside thought leaders and artists from around the world to sustainably solve global challenges. He's also a partner of Presence, an immersive entertainment group based in Los Angeles, focusing on redesigning social environments the culture of human connection. Seth is a mastermind of innovation and the project director of Wildwood in Topanga Canyon. And so with these words, welcome, Seth. How you doing, man? It's good to talk to you. Yeah, it's good to hang out here together and address some of our, you know, planetary challenges and the way to innovatively think in different ways around them to, to embody and enact in different ways. So we have to start right there. We have challenges in the world right now. Exactly. That's why I wanted to start. Like this, this world is unprecedented, right? Like it's the beginning of the 2020s as a decade. Um, we're in August right now recording this. What do you reckon, Seth, is like most required in the world of today to actually, you know, face what's up and, and step into like embodiment of, of change? Um, that's a great question. I, I, inside of that, I, I kind of always go back to this, um, this thing that my dad used to teach me when I was younger, um, and I, I kind of boil it down into this single quote, um, but he used to say that we don't know the type of person we are until something happens and we simply react. Uh, my dad was a medical doctor and um, an incredibly just like humble and selfless person. Um, and I had seen him in numerous different moments in my life, whether um, it was car crashes that happened in front of us that he went and took on a, a uh, the kind of direction of how, what needed to happen in that moment or um, different moments where I was with him in the hospital and he would be taking on a, a moment that was high pressure. And I would see him in that moment and it was just, just even keel, um, centered. Uh, and so I spent uh, a good chunk of my later 20s um, in some leadership development work specifically focused around um, how we hold ourselves in moments of pressure. Um, as a kid, I was always kind of that, that, you know, I was never the best at any sport. I liked to play a lot of different things. And I, you know, I would captain teams and help organize how they would, um, how kids would work together. But I, I, I never was really like the best player on the team. So I wasn't the kid that they would give the ball to at the end of the game, even though inside of me, like my whole being was like, give me the ball in this moment. I want to have the moment of pressure. Um, because, there's something that happens when we can create hyper-focus uh, in a moment of pressure and when we can synthesize that focus with um, other people that are focused around us, um, we, can, we can do a lot of really good work very quickly. And I think right now it's a, it's a moment in time where uh, we're being called to not only step into the best versions of ourselves and the most centered versions of ourselves, but actually optimizing our state to be able to work with and cohere with other people um, and, and focus on how we actually do that together. Um, because as we can see, the problems that are here in the world right now are not things that we're going to solve on our own. 
So in a way, this, this current state of the world is putting on this pressure for us to actually jump into focus, jump into flow and actually collaborate together. It's, it's a very beautiful way to make sense of what's going on in the world and not, you know, not fall apart by that pressure. So I know you're, you know, we, I said in the, in the intro, you know, you, you, you connect people and systems with, with innovation and like how they can actually connect. So walk us maybe a little bit through some of the highlights in, of your last years that kind of led up to this moment that lets us understand more of the, the kind of guy you are, what, what you're creating, what you're excited about. Yeah. Um, I guess if we really want to know the kind of guy I am, the kind of person I am, um, I would actually like, I'd go back to, um, back to my childhood again, actually. And uh, I had some moments in childhood that were pretty traumatic, they were pretty heavy, and not really normal circumstances that most people face when they're young. Um, deaths and like really kind of uh, just tough moments. And following those moments, I, um, parts of my brain started to kind of loop in ways that uh, teachers started to notice, my parents started to notice, and I was eventually diagnosed with obsessive compulsive disorder and ADHD and like there was all these medications that would come in and um, I remember feeling like like my whole kind of being that wanted to come alive was being repressed um, and so in school like I would I would spend my time I didn't really I, I I did just enough to get good grades in school but I didn't really go above and beyond um, and I would actually spend my time I remember being in like fourth and fifth and sixth grade and the hours leading up to recess I was on paper organizing recess. I was like dividing up all the kids into different teams. I knew who was going to be making out underneath the tire swing and I knew who was going to be playing paddle ball and I guess all these different things. And I was like, and I started to look at that over the last couple of years of my life. And I was like, wow, I'm still doing the exact same thing that I used to, which is looking at the people that I cared about, looking at how they usually don't interact with each other. And they usually are working on different things going off in different directions, but that their core was still focused on the same thing. As a kid, it was like, we want to have fun. We want to, mm -hmm. we want recess to be fun. Now we're like, well, we want to go out and do something that's going to impact the world. Um, and so for me, um, the drive behind my entire life was really um, bringing the people that I cared about together. Um, and that went anywhere from like creative projects to sports teams to, um, to event cycles and production cycles um, to, I mean, I'm like on my eighth marriage where I've introduced the couple, but to me, <laughs> what, drove, what drove me was really seeing two people or more come together and see them, uh, bear witness to what was between them that wasn't there if they were on their own. Um, and that, that to me, it's, it's, it's connection. Um, it really is. It's human connection. It's the feeling of connection that we have. Um, and ultimately when we boil it down, it's, it's, I felt so blessed to have so much connection in my life. Uh, and I couldn't stand the idea that other people didn't have that. And so um, I just got really hyper-focused on the systems that would actually allow for people to come back into connection. And so it got, you know, it got into um, creative projects, but then it got into technology and then it got into, you know, physical spaces and environments and events and all of these different things that would allow people to come together um, in ways that meant something to them. Uh, and so, you know, I love this, Seth. If I, if I, you know, I guess, you know, many people call me connector. If you ask my dad, or like my parents, what I do, they'd probably be like, well, he's an organizer. 
right? Because I do like my, my, whatever the part of my brain that, that, that people used to call obsessive compulsive, like I've definitely um, honed that in to be something that is a really amazing. I want to, I want to put the finger in there. I love, I love that you went back to your childhood and the essence of who you are much rather than the accomplishments of what you've done. They're the play and the expression of who we are, but the obsessive compulsive is an advantage if you know how to hone it, focus it and ride it like a dragon. Right? Well, it's also, it's also really under, like being able to understand what's actually going on in the brain um, when that's occurring. And I think so often it was just like, here's a pill that'll, that should fix that. And, and that's what most people, especially, you know, prior to being 18, where they're making their own decisions, that's what, that's what they're really facing is this medicated approach to like, well, you're, you're broken. We need to fix you. So a lot of my life and a lot of the trauma that I had to get through was a lot of teachers telling me that what I was doing and how I was behaving was not okay. And that it wasn't, um, that it wasn't, it wasn't okay for me to be me and that there was a reason that they needed to fix it. Um, And so, so I spent a lot of my life in this place of like, like, just like trying to, to, to rid myself of people's opinions. And I still day to day am in that. Um, But I think that, I think that when um, when I really get down to it, when I really start to think about how um, how I was able to come through that kind of that that looping that occurred mm-hmm. that really happens in a, in an obsessive mind, um, it's really um, it's it was any it, the moments that would take me out of that looping were moments that were driving my attention into the present moment. And so we were, um, as a kid, it was just like, it was extreme sports and it was play and it was music and jazz and musical theater and um, anything that would essentially, cinema was big for me too. Basically anything that could shut off the future of the world that could be happening eventually or stories about what used to be, anything that could shut that off and just drive me into the moment, I went towards those things. And so my life kind of um, became this just like, um, plethora of different experiences. Um, and another thing that I have to like tip my, tip my hat, uh, to my dad too, is that he really taught me how to learn like the game mechanics of something. So he's like, well, if you understand how the rules of the game work and you understand the mechanics of the game, then you can always go back to that. It's like riding a bike, right? So any sport that I picked up or any activity that I did, it was really, I knew that I wasn't going to be the best at it but I at least knew that if I learned the game mechanics of it, I could talk to somebody that was the best about it or the best at it. Um, and so at, after, after a while, um, and I started meeting all these people around the world that had these amazing skill sets, I was like, well, I don't need to know how to be better at what they're doing uh, than them. What I need to do is understand how to talk to them, how to interact with them, and so that I can understand what they want to be doing and where maybe their blind spots are and how to help fill them with other people. Mm. This is fascinating already. I have like about six or seven different pins in what you said that I'd like to come back to, and I'm not sure if I can track them all all so, back. But but basically, you know, you said your parents would call you an organizer, which which I I like this. Um, you pointed at something that I think is very prevalent in this world, in like the global world, not just the U.S. All across the world, there's like the best culture, the the best off, right? Like who are kids following? They're following. A Michael Jordan or a Cristiano Ronaldo, like the, the best in, the best of sports, instead of finding their own ability, their own skills. And so you've kind well, of found a, your early way to detour that, right? Well, it's their, and it's their own definition. of So let's look at art, 
right? So I, I'm a believer that every single person on this planet is an artist, that our art, that our unique art that we put out into the world, and really like art is that unique voice, that it's a, a combination of all of our skills, all of our experiences, our relationships, our traumas, our hobbies, everything that we cared about come to a head. And the expression of that unique voice that is only ours, that only we have, that that is our art. Finding that has not been so easy for most people. There was an article um, that came and, and really actually not only finding it, but developing an art that was something different than what other people were doing. I think most people, when they think about art, they're like, oh yeah, well, they're a musician and they make music. It's like, well, musicians are a lot more than just a musician usually, but a lot of times the sense the market drives them to um, make music for a living, that's really how they get recognized. There was this, art, or this uh, article that was wrote um, by this Harvard professor in the New York Times a while back, and I'm gonna forget what the article was called, uh, but it was, it was essentially about how the future of the world is really going to be determined by a subcategory of people that they call generalists. Um, and generalists are essentially uh, people that have picked up a, a plethora of different skills together and are kind of organizing those skills into a very unique output that is their own. Um, if you think about, um, you know, when people talk about like a polymath or they talk about somebody that's multidisciplined, they're really talking about a general approach to understanding the mechanics of different components of life and how those intersect together. Uh, when Bucky Buckminster Fuller passed away, um, actually before he passed away, there was there was a point where somebody asked, um, you know, what what did you do? And I'm I'm gonna get that I'm gonna butcher this quote here, but it was essentially his response was, I'm just a fantastic ball of experiences. Mm. It's so powerful. It's right? very powerful, so, man. It's um, very powerful. To, to me, and at this point, and really what, what we've been doing with Presence and with our entire kind of ecosystem and all the innovation work that we've been doing, it really goes back to experiential because we believe that through it, like it's through experience that we learn at our highest capacity. Um, and so if we can design environments that are essentially experiential based learning environments, the speed by which people are picking up new uh, behaviors, new habit patterns and new skills, it's pretty immense. And so our question was like, how do we organize that? And how do we support that? And how do we scale that? And how do we also create the design parameters and the root metrics that actually allow us to understand that what we're designing is actually good for people? And I think that, um, you know, I, I don't think we have the answer for that, but I at least think that we're posing some of the most important questions. Um, I think when it came to, to presence in particular, now presence is a, uh, a, it's essentially a distribution platform for experiences. It's a way to kind of for communities to harness their ability to put on experiences, to replicate, to modulate those experiences and potentially ship them out to other communities. Um, but on the front end, it really looks like a, it's almost like a Netflix meets Airbnb experiences. Um, and so uh, what we were really working on there was a, uh, to develop a um, process by which people could create these experiences, understand the tools that they needed to build these experiences and get them out into their communities. And the hypothesis was that experiences fire off communities. Now, if that's the case and we're gonna create scalability across people making more experiences, then we wanna ensure that those experiences not only are quality and that people wanna to go to them, but they're actually like being designed for the proper behaviors. So, um, 
you know, it was, I, I remember for a while when I was working with Damien, we had this whole thing, this whole conversation where I'm like, I don't want to name what we're doing. Like the moment that we name it, we got to get in this enrollment conversation where we like, you know, we, we have to say like, hey, we've got a thing that we want everybody to come into and be a part of our thing. And it's like, well, that's that that actually detracts from the essence of what we were trying to create. And so I was like, you know, can we not name this for a while? And he was like, sure, let's let's not name it for a while. And then uh, I, I, I actually uh, sat a spiritual ceremony um, about a year and a half ago. And I, I went in and I, I was uh, I was really asking questions about naming, not only naming like a company or an entity, but like, why do we feel the need to name something? Like mm -hmm. what, what is that in us? Why do we feel the need to put a stamp on something and say, this is me, or this is my legacy, or this is what I, and, and as I was asking this question, the response that I got essentially from whatever spiritual channel was coming through was like, well, what at, at the time Damien had built the, the, the platform to be called presence. And, um, and I was like, what do I do about the name? And, and I got presented back with this question of like, what could be more important than presence? And so I went back to Damien and it, like that hit me. It was like, oh my God, like this is, it's, it's not about, it's not the name. That's not the name of the company. And I was like, so I went back to Damien. I'm like, you know, that whole conversation around like naming and presence. And he's like, yeah. And I'm like, I think it's presence. And he's like, I know. And I'm like, but it's not like the thing. He's like, I know. I'm like, it's like the root metric of what we're designing for. He's like, yeah, exactly. It was really to us, presence was the ideal state by which connection happened. And if we could design for a state of presence, we were essentially inviting people into a deeper connection with themselves, with each other and with nature. And when we're there, the things that come from that place and that state, you know, there's different ways to look at it. Eckhart Tolle calls it the deep now. Jamie Wheel and Stephen Kotler in their work with Flow Genome Project called it flow or ecstasis. Mm -hmm. um, you know, some people call it tantra, but it's a state that is everything kind of all encompassing uh, at once. And um, I don't believe that there are many people in the world that get to experience that state at a consistent basis right now. But I do believe there are experiences and activities in the world that drive essentially neoteny or newness, which yeah. invites that state. It's like, um, that's where we really like, that's where we thought that physical space was so critically important. It was like, yes, the experiences were important, but the physical space by which we hold those experiences in, that's really physical space engineers our mind more than anything else. So if you think of the moment that you walk into like a Roman cathedral and you're immediately struck with awe and reverence, that moment is presencing. Why? Because it's where we go through this kind of, um, in cinema, they call it a didactic shift, this, um, this, closing of a door to a world that we once knew to open a door to a world that we didn't know existed. And that moment in time is not only incredibly presencing, but invites new ideas and it invites a state of awe. Um, and really that's, which, that's which invites us into the most receptivity, right? It's kind of like what you said earlier as a, as a young, uh, either teenager or a child, when you learn to kind of harness your, your obsessive compulsive advantage, I'm going to call it that it's like, stepping into the moment of flow stepping into the moment of awe is when actually all of the energy just starts bottling up right here right in this moment i mean for some people that are really athletic maybe 
surfing is a good metaphor. The moment you drop into the wave, nothing else exists. Well, you can, it can't, I mean, that's even more than that. It's not that nothing else exists. It's that it can exist. If you're a, a big wave surfer in the barrel of a big wave and you take your, your attention off of the present moment, you're fucked. <laughs> it's not a good moment. So um, it's really like, how, how do we actually begin to invite that state back in more? Um, it's a beautiful pursuit. And I think you're, you're absolutely right. Connection happens in this space of you know being invited into presence and presence is not necessarily only an achievement that only some gurus or some you know super enlightened beings create for themselves on an ongoing basis but presence is that's what i heard you say like it's something we all pop in and out of and that's that's also okay there's no there's no need to be the best at it's more about how can we design spaces experiences and containers that we go in there yeah how would you relate this? Because I, I like, you know, you went back to your childhood a few times. How would you relate this to the education paradigm and system at large? Like we know mm. there needs lots, mm. needs shifting. And so my, my curiosity here, Seth, is like, what would you or you with a team of experts do if you were to redesign the education system at large? Ooh, I don't know that I've ever been asked that question. Um, so I fought the educational system most of my life. Um, I was the kid that, uh, you know, as long as I paid attention enough in class um, and like I tested well and uh, I could write well. And so um, there was kind of, I just kind of got like skated by. Um, I didn't want to not move through and not have good grades. So I, mm -hmm. I drove towards at least having good grades so I could be respected for my grades. But after that point, I, um, I would misbehave a lot and I would misbehave <laughs> because I was bored. Yeah. Um, and my, my mother actually, uh, she, her rule, uh, her only rule that she had for me, really. I mean, like there was like little thing, like they would kind of guide me when I would get off track a little bit, but my parents were really good about not really determining a rule set that I would have to abide by because they believed that finding our own rule set was critical. My mom's main rule was that I was allowed to break rules as long as it didn't hurt anyone. <laughs> and that- Challenge uh, accepted. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so yeah. that to me is, um, that was I think one of the most important um, uh, lessons of my life and something that I hope to really um, bring into my children's life when I do have kids is, is that, you know, challenging a system is okay. Um, we really like deep at our core, we know what's good for us. Um, and I think that we really need to actually shift the way in which we're looking at education where the, the students or the children being educated can really be in a place of having their internal kind of their intuition guide what they should be learning. Like they know what they want to be pick, picking up. Um, right now, if you put them in a classroom and you tell them that history and then uh, memory class and then, uh, you know, social stuff, like, I mean, all these different components of, of, of school that they actually have to learn these things to, uh, to be a certain way in society, I think it's flawed. And so I think that, um, I mean, the way that I would tackle it, I, I think it would be kind of open the doors to the world a little bit more. I would, I would, I really like, like, there was a group that was doing something called Global Degree. Um, I don't know if they're still around. But yeah, Michael Graziano, I, I had him on the show. He, he's a friend. Absolutely. Yeah. Travel the world, experience every country. 
Exactly. And, and not only experience every country, but it was the culture and the, and, the, and the textures of life that come when you are living outside of a world that is pre-engineered. Yeah. I mean, that's what happened. That's what happened in my life, really. Like, you know, I, I got bored in school um, quite a bit. I mean, the best part about school was the socializing. It was like meeting my friends every day. Right. And uh, it related a lot to what you said. I got good enough grades to, to make it and to let that be addressed. But then when I was 14, my spirit somehow had this idea of bringing me abroad away from this, this German kind of matrix I grew up in. And, and that changed everything. Now, even when I came back from this one year abroad, I respected school, yeah. which was a weird kind of, you know, like paradox, paradox and kind of a flip in how I thought before. I was like, well, this school thing, even though I don't love it, I'm really grateful I have it because the country I went to, which was Paraguay in my case, their school system, with all respect, is fucked. Like no one learned anything in there, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And so, yeah, very, very interesting. Very interesting. Um, Seth, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just give you some more questions to bounce off from. And so one other topic I'm really super curious about and exploring since a while on the show is the topic of trust and moving at the speed of trust. And so my, my question to enter that topic is for you as a person, what's required to experience trust? I just like asked myself, like, what would I say right here to even have an audience uh, that wants to trust me? Like, what do I have to do in this moment to be trusted? And I think the most important thing um, that is necessary for trust uh, sits within the realm of vulnerability. Um, and I think it's really awesome to explore, especially as men, um, we don't tend to be great at the practice of putting down our shields and our swords um, before the other. Um, I, uh, I lived a life that was very, and still to this day, I live a life that's very emotionally inside out. Um, I cry a lot. I feel my emotions. I fall in love incredibly quickly and I go all the way in. Um, I show my mistakes. I, like I'm very open about where my blind spots are. I think that in that, the, 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 what I feel very fortunate uh, to have in my life is a field of people, a group of people, a community of people around me um, that not only I trust, but that trust me. And I believe that that trust comes about when we're able to really put down our shield and put down our sword and, um, and show who we really are. And that's uh, hard. It's really hard. It's really hard to show the parts of ourselves that we may not even be comfortable with within ourselves. Um, but it's also where the best reflections happen. And it's also where people can actually feel us and meet us uh, and learn to love the parts of us that may be different from them. Um, I, uh, I found that there were many people along the way where my energy wasn't for them. Where they just, you could see that they couldn't quite trust who I was um, because who I was and how open I was was incredibly confronting for them. Mm -hmm. And um, I used to make it mean something about me. Like they don't like me because of something in me. Um, 
but it's just not the case. When you are embodied in who you are, when you are sharing openly about who you are, and that is being put into the world with an undeniable um, kind of uh, just an undeniable truth, um, then the world tends to sort the people that should be in your life and should not be in your life. Um, and racial resonance, yeah. And so for a while, I, I, I used to concern myself with people where I'd be in an interaction with them and like I would... I would emotionally or passionately share about something that I cared about that was different from what they cared about. Or I would get sad about something that maybe they're not used to people being sad about. And I would watch them retract. And I would go into this process of like, well, what do I need to do to change so that they don't retract? And then um, I had enough people look at me and say like, what are you like, there's not, you don't need to change anything. Like this, you are you and you are perfect. Um, and so just going back to your question, I think that the most critical thing that we can do to establish trust is to find that place within ourself that actually speaks the truth of who we are. Um, but it's not a, it's not, it's when I say speaks, it's not verbal, it's not language. It's, you know, 80% of communication is nonverbal. And so it's about what our body is saying to another person and how they're able to trust that right? It's non-threatening to be emotionally available, usually, unless somebody is not emotionally available in themselves, and then it actually feels incredibly threatening to them. Right. It, it triggers that process within them. You, you explained something there very beautifully that, you know, I think relates to trust and leads to trust, but really is the process of, you call it living the emotions inside out, like going into vulnerability and understanding that this is a, this is what makes us uniquely ourselves. This is what makes us the puzzle piece or the snowflake that we are. And, you know, we just came from the education system before. It's like, in my own words, excuse my friends, it's fucked that we don't get taught that as children, unless our, our parents had an element of awakeness around that. Because if we get taught this as children, what happens is now we're actually equipped to build real connection, to build real relationships, to vibrationally resonate with those around us that are meant for us, rather than trying to please and appease others, right? How do you, how do you teach that? And that's really the question. It's like, because so much of what we're learning as kids actually isn't being taught from our parents and from our, our teachers. It's us as kids interacting with other kids and being taught from that environment. And so if the exactly. other kids aren't aware of that, how are we even supposed to learn that? I was, um, you know, I mentioned that I had some deaths early on in my life that were incredibly potent um, and, and kind of, uh, they really had me face like the reality of life and death early on. I had a sister that passed away when I was seven. Um, and that was really the first kind of window into um, just being emotionally wrecked, like mm. just upside down. Um, but what I got to see through that process is that life went on, that like, it was okay. There was, my mom used to share a quote and I forget where it came from, but I think it was, I think it's found in most religions and around, around this idea that this too shall pass. It's okay. Like this is going to pass. Um, 
And when we go through moments like that as kids, um, it helps us understand that life can really throw some really challenging moments at us and that we can get through them. But I think that unfortunately, a lot of people, you know, it's when I share with somebody that my sister passed away and the way in which she passed away, which was incredibly violent, um, they, they go into this place of like, oh my God, I'm sorry that that happened. And I'm like, thank you. And it was actually the most important thing that ever happened to me. And so for me, I look back at that moment as um, it's, I'm grateful for it. Even though it's painful, it also made me who I am. Thank you for sharing that with us right now, right here, and, and pointing at the lesson that, that's in it, that once there's acceptance, there's almost like the, the pathway to gratitude shows up, right? And, and I think you asked the question back to me, you said, how do you teach that? And so I think what we shared initially in this story, in this interview, environment, setting up space can teach that, right? Mm -hmm. The setting a free and open stage for curiosity can teach that, but then really my voice is cracking up because it is very touching, right? Like the setting up for a form of challenge, failure, or problems, I think is also very important. And the school system is kind of the opposite. It's trying to make you the perfect robot, right? To be the perfect thing that can do and solve the things. But what about the role of failure? Like for me, for example, everything I've learned had to do with not being able to connect with people and being like, well, I want to figure this out. I'm in this foreign country. Like, what the fuck am I doing here? Why is this person not understanding me? Well, let me go back to the drawing board and find a way. And so by oh. failing and finding a way, I opened those doors over time eventually. You took a risk in going to a different country. We cannot fail if we don't take risks. Mm. So the important, I think why I, I love innovation so much, why I love creative like design thinking containers and creative containers is because it allows me to think outside the box. And when I'm able to think outside the box, I know that what I think about might actually not work. And most people, when they have an idea like that, what do they do? Well, they're going to they're gonna bottle that up and they're going to put that away. Right. And it's like, that's, it's way too high of risk to see something fail. The nature of innovation is within that prototyping process. It's within that testing, iteration, failure, and getting back up and trying again. And that, that is the process that is not trained. Um, and also observing what's actually emerging when you iterate and test, right? Because many times innovations were meant to be something, but then, you know, something else shows up like uh, penicillin, I think was, you know, found this way and there's mold growing uh, and, and then it's like, oh, wow, what is this? Or like, think of the modern world, like Instagram, like they didn't try to be the, the coolest image app. They tried to be everything and then they reduce it to images and boom, now billions of people love it, right? So, so I think, preparing us for this way of, of failure has a lot to do with risk. I totally agree with you there. And, and risk is something a lot of people still avoid. And I'm, I'm not telling everyone who's listening to this right now, quit your job and just jump into the biggest risk you can, but regularly design your life around a form of risk. Well, I mean, I would say I, I hear you in that. And I would say <laughs> if you're fucking unhappy with your life, yeah. jump. take risk, jump. Jump. And that's the same with, you know, I just, um, I just, uh, I, I, <laughs> this is a little more vulnerable, but um, I just ended a relationship uh, a couple months ago that um, I was like, I wasn't just two feet in. I was like, like my whole being was into this thing. 
Um, and, and it went, uh, it went to the place where, um, you know, when we bring our heart online to love in that way, um, to go all the way in, um, it's a fucking risk. It's a really big risk, but the reward of that risk, if it goes to, in a way that is, um, I mean, it's always, it's always going to be a reward, no matter if the relationship ends. Um, the gift of being all the way in is that, uh, is that you are strengthening the muscles by which you are going to use either within that relationship or within relationships moving forward. I came out of it the other day and I was like, my friend, uh, my friend Magdalena, who's actually a partner in some of the stuff that we're working on, she, I, I, she asked me, she's like, how are you doing? And I'm like, my heart's really hurting. Like I feel really heartbroken. And she goes, the heart can't break. It can only get stronger. Mm. That is so true. Break, breaking open to resilience. Yeah. Yeah, this is something that, you know, I love this conversation, Seth, because I think it's often kind of left outside, you know, just like achieve the thing, be happy, have the stuff. And obviously we know that that never worked for anyone truly, but the resilience building and understanding that the heart breaks open intellectually rather easy, but through experience, it's a hard process. Like, let's not lie about this, right? Like building resilience, life itself can be tough. Like life has a lot of, look at nature. Like we're part of nature. Nature can be ferocious. Nature is, nature is used to life and death cycle, you know? Yeah, I love, I've, I've always loved the, the I, um, you know, people refer to like, if you work in our project or working on something with a group of people and they're like, oh, we're doing this a little bit more aggressive. It should be a little bit more uh, organic and natural and soft. I'm like, have you ever looked at nature? It's incredibly <laughs> violent. Yeah. yeah. And we, we are part of that cycle. And, you know, that doesn't mean that we need to be aggressive at each other or be no. exploitative the way our, you know, dying no, patriarchy. Nature is consistently taking the risk. Exactly. Exactly. So if you look at... You know, I think the, the, the challenge here is people's resistance to change, right? People are resistant to change. Um, if you think about, I mean, look at the government that's in place right now. Or look at the, the party that's, that's running our, our, our government right now, right? The nature of that political party is a resistance to change. Mm. That's what it means to be conservative. Now, there are great things to conserve in the world. We want to conserve the nature. We want to conserve our moral principles. We want to conserve, and there's the, the list goes on, on things that are good to conserve. But the only, the only constant in the universe is change. And so being able to embrace change is critical. And it goes back to what we talked about at the beginning of this, which is that, again, we do not know the type of person we are until something happens and we simply react. Well, how do we get good at that moment? Well, it's not just going to happen. You're not just going to like, if you haven't practiced that moment your whole life, then little kid runs out in the road and is about to get hit by a bus and you're challenged with who you should be in that moment. You aren't intrinsically going to make the best decision that you would maybe want to make if you're not trained to be in that moment well. And that, that takes practice. It takes taking risks. It takes knowing that you could do something and you could die or your project could fail or your relationship could end. We feel internally that 
if we were, if something were to disappear that we love, whether it's a relationship, whether our project fails, whatever it is, that we are going to go through a pain that is not bearable and therefore we want to avoid that. And so we, um, we, and we, I think we associate that pain with um, loss. Like, oh my God, like my partner left me, I've lost them. My body can feel it, my heart can feel it, everything can feel it. It's because I, it's like, well, it's not, we're not actually, we're not actually upset internally about the loss of that person. What we're upset about, and this is kind of, uh, my friend Carson put it really well years ago. He said, the curse of human perspective is that we can't see ourselves directly. We only know ourselves in reflection. And so what that means is that when something, this, these mirrors that are all around us, mm -hmm. when one of those mirrors shatters, especially if it's a close one, right here, personal relationship or project that we really care about or our dog or our parents, when that shatters, we are staring into nothingness, into the void. It's change at the highest level. Um, but I think that we feel like the feeling in our body that we're going through, that pain, that it's because that thing is gone or that person is gone. It's not. We're upset because it's a part of ourself that we engineered inside that person that is now gone. It's an ego death. We miss the part of ourself that we got to witness in them. So we, oh, need to oh, practice, we need to practice being with death. And I think honestly, you know, somebody asked me that if you could change anything in the world, one thing, like if you had a magic wand and you could just strike it, what would it be? And I used to say like, it would be our relationship with change. Like that I would sh shift human beings relationship with change, but it goes hand in hand with death. It's really our relationship with death. And like, how are we actually processing that? And then, well, you know, as a species, I mean, there are different cultures in yeah, there's billions of people that actually process it pretty well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, cel they celebrate the, the life. Sure. They celebrate the life of those who pass, etc. Right? Like, remember those pictures from South Africa when Nelson Mandela passed? There yeah. were celebrations in the street for the glamorous and glorious life that this human sacrificed his journey for. Right? Yeah. Um, in our Western culture, same in Europe as in North America, we we go into this um, reclusive kind of uh, energy of, of loss, but but not even actively grieving just loss, right? And, and silence. Very true. Seth, I have one more question for you at the end of this episode, and that's around, um, you know, a little larger context here, and, and that includes our, uh, you know, perspective onto change and death. And so my question, uh, you know, I always ask this one because I just am so curious what's, what's in people's souls, what's in people's hearts. The question is, what's your dream for the planet? What's your earth vision, given the context of seven generations into the future? Um, I can just feel uh, in me that if like if what I'm about to say comes true like what the world could look like um, I believe in unleashing creative potential and um providing the necessary resources and environments and tools and relationships for people to uncork who they actually are, their art. And 
I think that I want that for myself so much that I'm driven to help create scaffolding for others to have that as well. Um, I want us to create together. I want us to innovate. I want us to grow. Um, and I also want us to learn together and be okay with us making mistakes together, but that it's a process together. That we're all on the same, you know, rock flying 57,000 miles through the vastness of space. We're all sharing like the captaincy, as Bucky said. So. Yeah, let that sink in. Brother, thank you so much for your time and for, for you know, your insights, the, some of your answers that, that, you know, just will uh, keep me thinking for quite a bit for sure. And I know everyone listening as well. So thank you so much. Very grateful for you, man. Keep up the great work. Hello, I'm Chris Gilmore from episode 224, Learning from Emergency Planning. I'm here to offer Green Planet, Blue Planet listeners a special opportunity to get 20% off two of my in-depth learning experiences. Opportunity number one is reading nature's forgotten language. Go deeper than you may even realize is possible in your relationship with the natural world and your ability to interpret nature's signs, tracks, and sounds. Nature has a language, and reading it is an ancient skill that is almost lost in our modern world. Relearning to read nature's story can help you be a better earth steward, learn to learn directly from nature, and it can greatly enhance your relationship with and the experiences you have in the outdoors. Watch the trailer and some of the sample lessons over at www.naturesforgottenlanguage.com and enter code GREENPLANET for 20% off. Opportunity number two is called Survive the Storms. In an era of rapid environmental, economic, and social change, do you want to feel better prepared to keep yourself and family safe? Whether a pandemic, extreme weather event, wildfire, or other unexpected disaster, Survive the Storms will help you build peace of mind and confidence fast. Check out the trailer of our one-of-a-kind game-like training that makes preparedness and safety both fun and practical. This one is very timely. Visit survivethestorms.com and don't forget to enter code GREENPLANET for 20% off. Both links are also available in the show notes. So stay connected, stay aware, stay safe with naturesforgottenlanguage.com and survivethestorms.com.